TechBiter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 431 for February 22nd, 2015. Tweaks, fixes, and utilities are this week's topic, ranging from Ninite for safe updates and when delays are good, to organizing ebooks and music, to God Mode and GE Geek. In short circuits, the Equation Group plants US based malware worldwide, and thieves steal perhaps a billion dollars from banks around the world. On the website only, spare parts includes movement toward full solid-state storage, crowdsourcing could be used for 911 calls, a $5 million competition for robotics, and Austin's South by Southwest Educational Conference expands. Last week, I described the dangers of downloading applications from what was once the premier location to find and download open-source software, SourceForge. I heard from a reader about a service called Ninite that can handle updates for many popular programs and utilities. This week, we'll look at that service, and while we're on the subject of utilities, let's take a look at some other useful programs. Most of them are free, or very reasonably priced. Starting with Ninite, and thanks, Matthew. The company offers an automated procedure that can be used by system administrators to update applications across an entire corporate domain. The cost ranges from $20 per month for up to 100 computers to $185 a month for 501 to 1,000 computers. But there is also a free manual version and an automated version for home use. The automated version costs just $10 a year. Besides keeping systems up to date, Ninite offers the advantage of automatically eliminating the adware, spyware, and malware that might be packaged with some of the applications. Even Adobe and Oracle try to install unwanted applications with some of the programs you need. The services website explains that the free service allows users to select applications that they want to install or update. Ninite then generates an executable file that downloads and installs any new applications you've selected, as well as checking the others for updated versions of the software. When updates are found, they're downloaded and installed without any of the add-ons that you don't want. You can use the list to choose from browsers, Chrome, Opera, and Firefox only, no Internet Explorer, media players, office suite applications, security programs, and more. Once you've selected the applications, clicking the Get Installer button downloads a single executable file. The download process illustrates which programs the installer will locate and install, or update, and explains how to use it. The explanation is really easy. Run the file. During the update process, Ninite explains what's happening. Some applications may be skipped because the version on your computer is already up to date, because the program is in use, or if you're running a beta version of an application because the installed version is newer than the version that the developers offer for updates. Overall, it's a painless process, and it gets even better. 
The fully automated Ninite installer, available for $10 a year, $25 if you want to use it on up to five computers for home or small business use. It could be used in larger corporations, too, but a better option is Ninite's corporate application. That's the one that can manage all Windows computers within the domain. Sometimes all you need is a text editor. Writing really works best as a two-step process. First, get your thoughts down on paper. In this case, paper can be the screen. Second, perform the editing and formatting steps. And that second step could be split into two parts, too. Editing, then formatting. Almost everybody writes better, though, without the distraction of formatting. And a word processor, whether it's Word or WordPerfect or Write or any other word processor, distracts writers by offering those formatting tools. That's why I recommend starting with a text editor. It's also why I often start the articles that I write with Ultra Edit Studio. But you might not want to spend $80 or more for a program that you'd use only occasionally to create a plain text file. So that's where Notepad++ comes in. Notepad++ doesn't have all of Ultra Edit Studio's features, but most of those extra features are ones that programmers will appreciate. And because Notepad++ doesn't have all of Ultra Edit Studio's features, it's a faster and smaller program. You know, sometimes delays are good. How many programs start when Windows starts on your computer? Even if you haven't added a lot of programs on your own, you might be surprised. If you eliminate some of those programs and delay ones that you don't need right away, the computer will start faster and be ready for you to use sooner. Startup Delayer gives you control over which applications start and when. You'll see a screenshot on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows what starts when my computer starts. The list may appear overwhelming because it's so long. Some of the items are protective software like Avast, or apps to control devices like Logitech Mouse. Some provide essential services like Adobe Creative Cloud, Google Drive Sync, Malwarebytes Anti-Malware. Others are just programs that I prefer to start automatically so that they'll be there when I need them. GoodSync, ColorMonkey, and DS Clock are examples. Depending on how many applications you want to load, how fast the computer's CPU is, and what the data transfer rate is for the disk subsystem, delaying some of those applications could significantly improve the startup process. Startup Delayer's interface consists mainly of a list of programs and services that start when the computer starts. Any given program or service may be delayed for a few seconds, a few minutes, or even a few hours. As helpful as that is, Startup Delayer can also be used to identify system problems because you can turn off programs at any time, temporarily stop them from launching, or even disable them. How much are you reading these days? I can't prove this, but it seems to me that people are reading more these days than they have for a while. Tablets, particularly those that are about the size of a paperback book, are handy reading devices. Some people read on computer screens. Some even use a smartphone for reading. In all cases, the electronic devices can take the place of dozens or even hundreds of books. No longer is there a stack of books on the floor by the bed waiting to be read. Now there's a long list of books on an Android tablet. Because those books are always with me, I'm reading more, and the books don't have to wait as long. Two applications, one on the computer, the other on a tablet, make the process easy. Calibra is on the desktop, and it runs on Windows, Mac, or Linux systems. It's the best way to manage and organize ebooks. 
It's also a reader, but Calibra's primary functions are all about organizing books and making them accessible. Calibra supports more than a dozen ebook formats, and that's important because publishers use a variety of formats, some with digital rights management, DRM, also known as copy protection, and some without. Calibra makes it possible to convert most books from the format they're in to the one that your reader device prefers. EPUB, PRF, and MOBI are the most common formats. DRM makes file conversion more difficult, but extensions are available for Calibra that remove the copy protection. This allows you to convert a book that you purchased in PRF format, for example, to EPUB if you want to use it on a device from another publisher. It's important to note that this feature is intended to make books easier for you to use, not to allow you to buy one copy of a book and hand it out to your 10,000 closest friends. When it comes to reading, my favorite reader application for Android is the Universal Book Reader. The free version is good, but spending a few bucks for the paid version eliminates ads, enables text-to-speech features, and includes a few other useful components. The Universal Book Reader supports EPUB, ACMS, and PDF formats, so you will need Calibra to convert other formats to the ones that the program can handle. The bookshelf metaphor the program uses makes finding books that you've imported easy, and the ability to create multiple bookshelves within the program makes organization easy. Unlike with physical books, you can adjust the color of the paper and the size and face used for the type. That's a feature that most electronic book readers provide, not just the universal book reader. There's a transition effect when you turn the page. My preference is a page flip. That makes the ebook look a little more like a paper book, even if it still doesn't feel like one. The reader can add bookmarks, it can highlight text, and it can copy text to share via email or social network. I've tried several book readers in the past few years, and this is the one that I use, recommend, and was willing to part with all of $3.50 for to obtain the paid ad-free version and to support the developer's work. The way we use music has changed a lot, too. Some people still buy CDs. You may be one of them, but you may want to convert those CDs to files that you can carry along on an MP3 player, a tablet, or a phone. But you don't want to tie your music to a proprietary player. If so, two applications will make your task a lot easier. Fairstar's CD Ripper to convert CD tracks to MP3 files, or some other format if you prefer, and MP3 Tag to organize and improve embedded metadata that travels with the MP3 files. Fairstar's CD Ripper is a free application for ripping audio CD tracks to WMA, MP3, AUG, VQF, FLAC, APE, and WAV formats. Free CDDB is supported both for queries and submissions. It supports normalization when ripping and also supports ID3 tag. Although I don't use it, the application includes a player function. Setting the defaults is divided into two primary sections, general and file type. The general classification determines whether volume is normalized, I turn that off, and other applications such as enabling ID3 tag, displaying a message when the process is complete, and creating an M3U playlist. Options for individual file types are specific to the features supported by the file. Sampling rate, bits per sample, and channels for WAV files, and sampling rate, channels, constant or variable bit rate, and the actual bit rate for MP3. The ripping process is easy. Just insert a CD in Fairstar's queries CDDB to obtain a list of tracks. 
In some cases, CDDB may return more than one listing so that you can choose the one that's most appropriate. Press Extract and watch as the program rips through each track on the CD. You'll also have the option of specifying how CD tracks are named and where the files are stored. Although Fairstars uses CDDB to obtain track information, sometimes the information is wrong, or at least sometimes I disagree with it. Additionally, you might want to include cover art with the CD tracks. You could scan the CD cover, of course, save the image, then import it into the track's metadata. Or you could use MP3 tag. Track information can be edited individually or for multiple tracks simultaneously. For example, if I converted a Natasha Bedingfield CD to MP3 files and felt that rock or female vocalist was more appropriate than pop, I could simply select all of the tracks, type my preferred description into the genre box, and then save changes. Even if I agree with the genre, I may want to add cover art. This can be obtained automatically from Amazon. With all tracks selected, just select the appropriate cover art source, and MP3 tag will return all of the images that it believes might be associated with those tracks. Then you select the cover art you prefer and save it to the file. Older CDs, ones that have been reissued several times, often have several covers. MP3 tag inserts any new information you've added along with the cover art into each MP3 file so that no matter what device you use to play the file, your information will be present. Have you heard of God Mode? Call it what you want. God Mode, Devil Mode, Foonblatt Mode, doesn't matter. What does matter is the globally unique identifier that you use when creating a directory. Do I have you confused yet? Okay, let's talk about how first and then why. First, how. You create a directory. The location doesn't seem to matter, but it's probably best not to create the directory on the computer's desktop. Then you name the directory something, doesn't matter what. And at the end, you include a globally unique identifier in braces. You'll find it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, but if you type fast, here it is. ED7BA470-8E54-465E-825C-9971204E01C. dash dash It'll be easier if you just go to the website. Now, the why. Well, when you open the directory you've just created, you'll find more than 150 Windows control functions, some of which aren't available even in the control panel, and they'll be right there at your fingertips, or your mouse cursor. God mode, or whatever you prefer to call it, used to be a hidden trick that developers could use. First available in Windows 7, it remains in Windows 8 and 8.1. Although it doesn't reveal any functions that can't be achieved some other way, it does place all of the tweaks and controls in a single, convenient package. If you're looking for a comprehensive resource for just about everything geek-related, take a look at GE Geek, and you'll find links to hundreds of useful resources. The GE geek who doesn't reveal his name says this about his site, and I quote, I worked for GE Medical Systems for 25 years as an X-ray PAX field engineer and now as a PAX IT director for Medical Imaging Center in New Jersey. Been trying to fix Windows ever since the IBM XTAT was first introduced back in 1983 when I worked for a small PC repair shop. I have a two-year technician's certification and bachelor's degree in electronics engineering as well as numerous IT certifications throughout the years. I don't see myself slowing down anytime soon. God help me, I still love it. 
be sure to check out the GE Geek website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Lots of really good stuff there. And finally, what do you do if you have a totally full hard drive? Some relatively early tablet computers have tiny hard drives. The original Acer Iconia, for example, shipped with a tiny 64-gigabyte hard drive that provided only about 57 gigabytes for the operating system and applications. Eventually, the time came when Windows updates couldn't be installed because there wasn't enough space available on the disk. I pulled out WinDurstat. It's a program I've described previously that illustrates exactly what's taking up the most amount of space on one or more disk drives. WinDurstat tells you exactly what's consuming the space, and in a lot of cases you'll find that it's the installer directory. But it's hazardous to remove files from the Windows installer directory. Some of the files are no longer needed, but are left behind by an inefficient Microsoft process. What's needed is a utility that can sniff out those files and remove them. WI Cleanup is such a program. On my desktop system, it identified 20 gigabytes of installer files that were no longer needed. The program is a bit cumbersome to use because the user first needs to check the box beside each file, or you can select all the files and then just press the spacebar, and then manually confirm each deletion. That can be pretty tedious if you have a thousand or more files. The other problem is that the developer of WI Cleanup seems not to support it any longer, and it cannot be downloaded from his website. It can be found on the Internet, but be careful to obtain just the file itself, not some extra stuff you don't want. In fact, if your boot drive has sufficient space, just leaving the unnecessary installer files does no harm. Except for the need to illustrate an article on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I would have left the extra installer files on the desktop machine. 20 gigabytes of excess files may seem like a lot, but it really wasn't a significant issue on that machine. It was on the tablet. And I have to issue this warning. This is not a utility that you should use unless your computer's C drive is completely out of space. Although the developer has attempted to ensure that essential installer files are not touched, there is no guarantee. In short circuits, perhaps you've heard of the Equation Group this week, the crown creator of cyber espionage. A couple of facts should be noted right here at the beginning. Kaspersky Lab is located in Moscow, and the company's founder, Eugene Kaspersky, graduated from the technical facility of the higher KGB school of Order of the Red Banner. The school specializes in cryptology and communications. Although headquartered in Moscow, Kaspersky's holding company is registered in the United Kingdom. It employs nearly 3,000 people and has offices in 30 countries. Kaspersky's products are used by more than a quarter million corporate clients worldwide. It focuses on large enterprises with some additional products for small and medium-sized businesses. So, is Kaspersky trustworthy? The organization is well-respected by European and U.S. security experts. Additionally, Kaspersky Lab identified the Flame malware in 2012. The Kaspersky reports were validated by other researchers. Flame infected some 1,000 to 5,000 computers. 
This week, Kaspersky Lab held a security analyst summit in Mexico, where it revealed the existence of what it calls the Equation Group. The Kaspersky Lab report says the group has been active since at least 2001 and is responsible for malware that Kaspersky has named Equation Drug and Grayfish, among others. The most alarming part of the report says that the malware is capable of reprogramming firmware inside computer hard drives. The U.S. National Security Agency is believed to be the primary operator here. At this point, it might also be worth noting that the United States would condemn actions such as these had China or North Korea or Russia been identified as the perpetrator. Kaspersky Lab characterizes the Equation Group as a threat actor that surpasses anything known in terms of complexity and sophistication of techniques. Even though it has just been identified, the Equation Group has been active for almost two decades. According to Kaspersky Lab researchers, the group is unique almost in every aspect of their activities. They use tools that are complicated and expensive to develop when they infect victims, retrieve data, and hide their activity in an outstandingly professional way. Kaspersky says the organization uses classic spying techniques to deliver malicious payloads to the victims. By classic spying techniques, Kaspersky is referring to spycraft that plants malware on computers that are not connected to external networks. The report says the group uses an arsenal of Trojans. Some of these have been identified, and Kaspersky has given them code names. Equation Laser, Equation Drug, Double Fantasy, Triple Fantasy, Fanny, and Grayfish. It expects to find more. What is both unique and disturbing about this organization is that it has developed modules that allow hard drive firmware to be reprogrammed. It works with hard drives manufactured by more than a dozen companies. In other words, nearly all disk drives would be vulnerable. Rewriting the firmware in a disk gives the Equation Group's malware the ability to survive even if a user formats the hard drive. To avoid discovery, the malware restricts access to a section of the disk drive so that standard scanning software can't even see it. The Grayfish malware becomes active immediately at boot time, and therefore it's able to capture encryption keys and other information that generally have been considered beyond the reach of malware. Once installed, the malware reaches out to other computers, even those that are not attached to an internal network. The fanny worm can reach across what are called air-gapped networks, machines that are not physically connected to each other, to map the topology of the network. And once it's done that, it can also execute commands on those isolated systems. Fanny uses a USB-based command and control mechanism that allows the attackers to pass data back and forth on air-gapped or sneaker net networks. The computers that are known to be infected are located in more than 30 countries at government and diplomatic institutions, telecommunications facilities, aerospace offices, energy distribution, nuclear research, oil and gas exploration, military bases, nanotechnology research labs, Islamic activists and scholars, mass media, transportation, financial institutions, and companies that develop encryption technologies. I have to wonder just how long it'll be until somebody creates malware that will race around the world like the viral plagues of history and indiscriminately wipe out every computer in its path. Now there's something pleasant to ponder.
This must be Kaspersky Labs' week to become highly visible. Kaspersky Lab says that clues about a massive bank job began to appear in 2013. An automatic teller machine in Ukraine occasionally dispensed cash, even though nobody was using the machine at the time. The bank called on Kaspersky to investigate, and that revealed a far larger problem. What they found is that remote cyber crooks had made off with $300 million worth of deposits, possibly more, possibly a lot more possibly more than $1 billion. The bank's computers had been infected by malware that sent information back to the crooks, who were then able to impersonate bank officials and transfer money from banks, primarily in Russia, but also in the United States, China, Japan, Switzerland, and Netherlands, to their own accounts. Kaspersky says the attack began in 2013, and the vector used to plant malware was the most common one, email that contained malware. They sent hundreds of infected messages to bank employees. Inevitably, some people opened the messages, and the bank's electronic security system wasn't sufficient to catch the infection. Once installed, the malware recorded keystrokes and captured screenshots that were then sent back to the crooks so that they could learn about each bank's procedures. Once they had that information, they were able to impersonate bank employees. Kaspersky says the crooks manipulated account balances so that, for example, an account that contained $1,000 would show a balance of $10,000. The crooks would then transfer $9,000 to their shadow account and leave the expected $1,000 balance in the account. For a malware attack such as this to succeed is one thing but it's quite another for the process to go unnoticed for two years as millions of dollars silently disappeared. How could the disappearance of possibly as much as a billion dollars not have triggered some warning somewhere? While learning each bank's procedures well enough to mimic bank employees, the crooks set up accounts in the U.S. and China to receive the money. To avoid detection, they generally waited several months to start extracting funds from the shadow accounts. And be sure you check out the website for spare parts. This week, movement toward full solid-state storage, crowdsourcing for 911 calls, a $5 million competition for robotics, and an expansion of Austin's South by Southwest Educational Conference. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com and if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.